Just remind everyone that this is a place of grace and forgiveness, but how many of you stole as a child? Just, you know, show of hands. It's okay to admit we're not going to, like, call the cops on you. You know, we've all, I would venture to guess, at some point or another, had a little bit of kleptomania running through our veins. Maybe a candy bar from the store, maybe a few dollars from mom's purse, maybe a, a smooth 20 from your sister's Minnie Mouse piggy bank, you know. Not trying to get too specific here. But uh, I'm actually, uh, this sounds weird, I'm a fan of, and how many of you stole like heist movies, by the way, uh, which is probably not something to say as a pastor, but I love heist movies, uh, like the movie 21, Ocean's Eleven, Italian Job, all of those movies always catch my attention. And so naturally, as I was perusing the internet a few days ago, I came across this article of a woman who, I don't know if I'd call it a heist, but created uh, a, a scene by robbing someone. It could have been an ex, they don't know. And uh, they captured her on her way, leaving the crime scene uh, in this. So go ahead. We'll, we have a picture of this woman. So she's just taken out. Come to find out she actually stole this lawnmower with the trailer and all this stuff. If you can notice right here, this is the Alabama Crimson Tide logo that she stole from a house. And so this is actually in the town of Flomaton, uh, Alabama, to which the police department took to their Facebook to say, we need some help identifying this woman. So they posted this. They said, uh, our, our suspect, she appears to be wearing possible apple bottom jeans, slides with no fur, and we no need the whole town of Flomaton looking for her. They go on to say, though, that someone said, you know, this gives a really good definition of roll tide. Uh, or more like patrol tide, if you ask me. And uh, just not really highway robbery, but definitely a form of it. It reminds me of a story, though, of a woman who came home from church one evening. She opened her garage, and to her dismay, someone had broken into her home. And so she goes into her home to find the intruder still there. She's kind of freaking out, not sure what to do, so she just stops and yells at him, Acts 238! Acts 238! Well, the intruder kind of freaks out and just all of a sudden drops to his knees, puts his hands in the air, and the woman takes out her phone, calls 911. The police officer comes, puts him in cuffs, takes him out to the car, walks back inside to get the woman's story. And he just kind of asks her, hey, like, this is kind of random. Like, most of the time when an intruder is caught, like, red-handed, they run, they take off, or maybe they try to attack you. Like, how did you get him to stop? And she just says, I just started yelling, Acts 238. Acts is the only thing I could think of. And so he's just kind of perplexed. So he walks back out to his patroller and he, he starts to drive towards the station to put him uh, away for the night. And then he puts it in park. He turns around and he just asks the man. And he says like, hey, I just got to know. Like, like, how on earth were you robbing something and, and, and someone you get caught? Because oftentimes you guys just take off and run. And she just started yelling Bible verses at you to get you to stop. To which the man said, Bible verses? I thought she said she had an axe and two thirty-eights. And I was scared for my life. I share this story for no other reason than I found it funny and we're in the study of the book of Acts today. So that's what you get this morning for an opener. Today we are in week four of our study through the book of Acts, 28 chapters, 28 weeks. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn with me to Acts chapter four. We're picking up where we left off last week. If you take your Bible and go about, I don't know, seven-eighths or so of the way, you'll hit the New Testament. You'll hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels. They give us a biography of the life of Jesus, and then after John, we hit the book of Acts. We talked about in week one how the book of Acts is actually a continuous or a continuation 
continuation of the gospel of Luke. And, and so here we are today, we're, we're plugging along. If you haven't had a chance to grab one of our Book of Acts study journals, I highly encourage you to grab one of those. They're next to Guest Central as you leave here this morning. You know, it's important, though, for us to remember that as we study the book of Acts, it's not about these superstar Christians. That The book of Acts isn't about these, these spiritual people who did things that we can never think or imagine, but what it is about is a supernatural God who does supernatural things through some pretty normal yet obedient followers and disciples of him. In week one, we talked about this important fact about the book of Acts is that the book of Acts tends to be more descriptive than prescriptive in nature. And that's super important for our text today. That when we say descriptive, there's a difference between that and prescriptive. That Something that is descriptive means here's what happened. Here's where they went. Here's who was there. Here's just kind of what unfolded. That's what descriptive scripture is. Prescriptive scripture is to say here's what needs to happen or should happen throughout all of time in history. That's because the book of Acts isn't so much to correct any doctrine, more or less. Rather, it's given to give a historical, accurate account of not only the life of Jesus from the book of, uh, book of Luke, but then as it continued, here's how the mission of God unfolded. Here's how the church got started. Here's what the power of the Holy Spirit was doing through these early apostles. And if you let me, I want to plant this idea in your mind this morning, and it's this question is what was required for the first disciples to keep the mission of God moving forward? And dare I say, what is required of us today in order to live on mission, to put the mission of God, something that moves forward? Because at this point in our story, it would have been very, very easy to take your foot off the gas. Some 5,000 people have joined in in just a handful of days. Man, this is bigger than any other church. We're the only church in the Yellow Pages. We can kind of just take it easy, right? We can kind of just go on cruise control from this point forward because there's not a whole lot of else going on. And that's the exact opposite of what the disciples, the first apostles, chose to do. And so in Acts chapter 4, we're picking up in verse 32 this morning. You can follow along with me. It says this. I'm sorry, Acts uh, verse 23. I said, so on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So just a quick recap of where we've been, because this is kind of important, is that uh, so, so there's all of these people from all over the Roman Empire have descended on the city of Jerusalem. Some of them have been there since Passover. Majority of them came for Pentecost. Uh, the, Jesus gives his, his spirit on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 people are saved a couple weeks later after the healing of a lame man at the, at the temple. Where we get that in a second. And then, then there's 5,000 people, and they're kind of just hanging out in Jerusalem, waiting to see how does this whole Jesus thing that we've committed our life to, we've heard the gospel, we've accepted, now what happens? A few days after Pentecost, Peter and John, they're on their way to church. It's a normal day, and there's a man sitting there. And we learn from our text that that man had been sitting there for 40 years. And that's interesting because that means Jesus would have walked past this man on several occasions and chose not to heal him. And then here Peter and John are. And the man makes eye contact with Peter and John and says to them, give me something, give me some alm, give me some, some, some money to take care of myself. And they say to the man, we have no gold, we have no silver, but what we do have, what we do have, we give to you. We give to you the power of the Holy Spirit. And as a result of this, two groups of people get a little uncomfortable. 
The average common Jewish person gets a little shock and surprise. How can they even do this? Who even has the power and the ability to heal someone like this? This is incredible. There's maybe perhaps a little of ignorance, and that kind of shakes out. But on the other hand are the rulers, the religious elite, so to speak, as they're called. And they kind of say, whoa, 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 who do you think you are? You don't get to do this. We do. We're the ones in charge. We're the ones who are the most spiritual. Who do you think you are? And so they arrest Peter and John. And they say, hey, we're just going um, to need you to stop. We're just going to need you to quit like healing people and telling people about Jesus. Well, and then Peter and John, well, why? Well, we don't like it. This is our turf. We were here first. No, 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 no. We don't like it. And so they're like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Okay, well, you didn't really do anything legal, so, so just go then. And then they kind of have a pity party. And so the, the Peter and John, they go back to the rest of the, uh, their crew, and they give this report. So we told them about Jesus. We healed a man. The, the, the leaders, they, they got upset, but they said that we looked and we acted and we seemed like we had been with Jesus. And everyone's like, this is amazing. This is incredible. Sure, that was not fun. Sure, they gave you some threats. But man, it's so great to have you back. What do we do now? I don't know. Let's pray. And they're like, okay, so let's pray. And that's what they do. Picking up in verse 24, we're going to summarize this prayer, their prayer in a couple verses here. Verse 24, it says, so when they heard this, the report, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? This is from Psalm 2. Skip to verse 29, though. It says, now the Lord considered their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. This is essentially the first prayer request of the first church ever. And it says they, they raised their voices together in one accord, as some translations like to put it. They were not disunified in what to pray about. It reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3. By your glory, for your strength, in your power, will you give us a way to live. And so here's the breakdown of the prayer. They start off and they say, God, you are sovereign. AKA, you are Lord, you are in control of everything. You have made it clear to us what we ought to do. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, thesis. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. We are on mission to help as many people discover you. But you've also warned us, they say in prayer. Psalm chapter 2. There's going to be trial. There's going to be things that creep in. There's going to be threats. But we know that whatever comes to us has first passed through you. And so we know what to pray for. And the first prayer request ever of the apostles was for one thing. It was for boldness. That the first prayer request of the first church was for boldness. Think about that for a moment. It was for boldness. As I reflected on my own prayer life, and perhaps this is true of yours, what does your prayer request tend to look like? Does not much of your prayer life consist of what we want God to do for us rather than how I can be used for his glory? 
One of my favorite uh, pastors, he's also an author, he, his name is Mark Batterson. He wrote this book called The Circle Maker, talking about the power of prayer in which he says this. He says, prayer is the difference between you fighting for God and God fighting for you. Secret prayer is our secret weapon. Ultimately, the transcript of your prayers becomes the script of your life. Notice the difference between their prayers. It was not towards themselves. God, this isn't fair. How dare they? Who do they think they are? We're we're drowning here. Can you save us? The prayer was not towards the threats. God, do your thing, boy. Take them out. You know they're in the wrong. Can you just, you know, a little zap zap take care of them for us? He said, no, 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 but God, you are sovereign. You are good. Give us boldness. Knowing full well that that boldness would lead to more trial, more threats, more darkness to creep in, so to speak. So let me say that again, that their first sense of trial and hardship, their first response is prayer. And what do they pray for? They pray for more safety. Do they pray for for protection? No. Vengeance? That's probably what I would have done. No. They say, Lord, give us boldness. What do we tend to be bold about in life? Think about like the things that you would perhaps take a very bold stance on in life today. What what are some of the things that you, you or maybe someone you see like, if I were to say to you, okay, ready for this? I'm going to make a bold statement this morning. Hold on to your seats. This is a big one, okay? Some of you might leave the church as a result of this, but okay, I'm just going to be honest. That Popeye's makes the best chicken sandwich. Right? Some of you are like, okay, someone get this guy out of here. That's a little crazy, but they're open on Sundays, so you know what I'm saying, right? If I said, you know, I've just been thinking about it, praying about it, Chevy makes the best truck. Some of you are like, boy, you've never driven a Super Duty, have you? Dodge Hemi? What do you know? You just drive a measly little Toyota Tacoma pickup. Like, you know nothing about real trucks. If I say there's only one brand of soda, one company of soda you need to drink, and it starts with a P and ends with an Epsi, some of you are about to get and walk out. I understand, right? It's interesting because in our life today, the things we take bold stances on really don't mean anything at the end. But what about the things that have eternal impact? Are we willing to stand boldly for those things. Think about what just happened. Jesus said to him, I'm going to give you my spirit so you can live on mission. And so they say, okay, all right, J-Dog, let's do this. And they go out and they actually do it. They heal a man. No one's ever done that before except for Jesus. And so they heal a man. And he gets up and he walks. And people say, why did you do this? The power of the Holy Spirit in us. And then they get in trouble, they get their hands slapped, they get some threats, don't you ever do this again because we will come for you. And so they stop and they say, Lord, more boldness, please. More boldness to do that more for your glory. And not only that, it says they were unified over it. Reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. This is the purpose of the church. Ephesians chapter 4, 11, 12, 13 Paul says this, he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach all unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure and the fullness of Christ. 
If there's anything any Christian, any disciple, past, present, and future should be unified over, it's this one simple thing, that we've been given the power of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the mission of God. That we should be able to come together, be unified over one sole thing, is that we now exist new lives in this life to live as heaven on earth so that as many people may hear that gospel, know that gospel, receive that gospel message. And what the early church asked for, even though they knew they would be giving up earthly comfort, was going to bring eternal implications. But also notice where they had to find it. They didn't say, Lord, allow us to dig deep within ourselves. God, give us a discovery of our own grit, of our own hearts, of our own minds. They said, no, no, God, give us your boldness. It was required from God. They couldn't muster it themselves. That's because God's mission requires the Holy Spirit's provision. They ask for boldness. Say, God, we want to bring you more glory, but we're going to need your power to move in us for this mission that you have placed us on to become. And God's like, boom, love it. Here you go. I don't know how he did it, but like, here's more boldness. And this isn't just true of boldness. I think it's true of everything in our life as a disciple. Like if we say, Lord, I want to be more sanctified. I want to follow after you. I want to reject sin, temptation that so easily entangles me. The answer isn't, okay, I just want to white knuckle it a little bit harder. It's like, no, 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 Lord, give me your spirit to say no. Give me the power, the grace that you have given in order to live this new life. If we say to God, God, I want to learn to live generously as you've called every single person to do. We don't say, okay, well, let me make a bunch more money first and then I'll be generous. Let me get all of my affairs in order first and then I'll learn. And we say to God, God, give me a joy that leads and is found in you to a contentment so that I can live open-handed to everything you've given me in this life. If, if, if we say to God, God, well, you know what? I want to forgive others the way that you've forgiven me. We don't, we don't need to try to figure it out on our own. We don't need to perhaps think about it more. We need to say, Spirit, transform my heart, transform my mind, because I want to be forgiving others the way you have been forgiving me. And to me, it's not just simply that they prayed for boldness. It's the fact that they prayed for boldness right after some darkness crept into their mission. You guys remember Snapple Facts by any chance, right? Like, like middle school, high school, Eric drank a lot of mango Snapple just purely because of these. You get the Snapple and you'd pop it, and then it had that little clicking top where you could really annoy teachers. So junior hires, pro tip for you, there you go. Figure that one out. And so, so Snapple for a while had these ideas, these things called Snapple Facts, and there's fun little facts about the earth, animals, whatever. And so I just always remember, I have a point to this illustration. You're like, where is this going? I'm going to get there eventually, but just hear me out. Here's a couple fun ones uh, that, that I found. Google that. I don't remember all of these, but here's a couple uh, Snapple Facts for you. Number one is that mangoes can get sunburns. Don't know what that looks like. Don't know what that means. Not sure I even believe it, but Snapple said it, so I believe it. It's a thing, I guess. Animals that lay eggs don't have belly buttons. Based on anatomy, that makes sense. There's not that little tubey thing that needs to connect. I don't know what it's called. Right, but who's the guy who's like, oh, you laid an egg, let me lift up some feathers here? Yep, just what I thought. No belly button on you, bucko. 40% of twins invent their own language. Any twins in here, by any chance? Do you guys have your own language? 
No, no, okay, so maybe it's not true. I was really hoping. I'd be like, hey, spout some off for us. You know, let us in. The one, though, I do remember was this one because I found it so interesting is that some flowers get their name because they follow the sun. Did you know that? Some of you are like, yeah, it's super obvious. I did not know that, but I remember it. Sunflowers get their name because they follow the sun, that when the sun rises in the east, I had to think about that, <laughs> sunflowers are facing, and as the day goes on, a sunflower will slowly adjust so that it faces the sun on the entire day. And then when the sun sets, they will readjust and wait for the sun to come up. And somebody shared with me Thursday service something even more interesting about sunflowers is that if they don't have direct access to sunlight, if it's raining, if it's dark, if it's windy, sunflowers don't look for the sun. What they do is they, if they're in a field, they will turn into one another for protection and safety. They care for one. They become unified, if you will. To me, the early disciples, the first church, were sunflowers. God, we are orienting our life towards you. We want to be with you, as Samuel talked about last week. We want to be able to know your presence. We want to be able to see your face. We want to adjust to wherever you are moving, where you are leading. And if darkness comes in, we're going to be unified. We're going to care for one another. We're going to protect each other. If the rain stays a little bit longer than we anticipated, we want to be like that. We want to be so fixated on you that we cannot live, we cannot survive, we cannot get by another day without focusing on you. They were like sunflowers. But it's easy to be a sunflower when it feels like the sun is shining down on you day after day. When you feel God's love, when you see God's work in your life, it's very easy to say, God, of course I want to reorient my life toward you. But what about when darkness comes in? What about when the threats you weren't anticipating begin to be hurled your way? What then? Do you still choose to be a sunflower or do you turn into something else? This is a succulent or a houseplant as some people call them. They're really popular on HGTV right now. What a succulent or a houseplant does, it says, I don't need much to survive. I don't even need that much water, maybe once a week. If you forget, <laughs> I'll probably grit it out for you. I don't need any sunlight. You can put me in the darkest corner and there's a good chance I'm going to at least survive longer than your average plant. And I think a lot of us turn into succulents when threats or darkness kind of creeps in in life. It's easy to be a sunflower when it feels like God is shining down on you, but what about when the threats come? What about when the diagnosis comes back positive? What about when the boss comes in and says, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do. We're going to have to let you go. What about when you and that spouse or you and that close friend or, or you and that family member just can't seem to figure it out? That's when a lot of us go from being sunflowers to being succulents because we say, well, I guess the sun's just not going to shine on me again. I'm going to have to rely on myself. I'm going to have to figure this out on my own. The darkness probably is never going to lift. And we forget the promise of Jesus in Matthew 28 in which he says, I'm sending you on this mission, but don't forget I am with you to the end of the age. God will let you make choices in this life. It's the truth. 
God also will never lower the bar of what it means to be a disciple and follower of him. Deny yourself, pick up your cross daily and come after me. But he will always lovingly, gracefully welcome you back into his presence. He will never say, sorry, you turned the other way. You're just gonna be a sucky, succulent the rest of your life. You can say, no, 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 I have chosen to try to survive on my own, but God, no, no, forgive me. Give me the sense of your warmth, your love, your power, your grace. I wanna reorient my entire life and then when I see you go down, when the storm rolls in, I've been given a church, I've been a community that we can be united for to strengthen one another and we will anticipate that you will rise again. It's what the disciples chose to be. They act as sunflowers saying darkness has crept in. But we've got one another's back. We'll be unified over what the spirit leads us to do. And this is how they act in return. Watch this. Picking up in verse 32. This might sound familiar. Chapter 4 verse 32 says all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify the resurrection of the Lord. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who had owned land or houses sold them and brought them money in sales. And it says they put it at the apostles' feet. This sounds familiar to you. If you go a couple chapters earlier, the end of chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, when we preached on Acts chapter 2, I didn't touch that passage, and some of you sent me some emails being like, I'm pretty sure it's a sin to not talk about Psalm or Acts 42 through 47 in chapter 2. I said, yeah, because it's coming up again. And here it is again happening. Remember the context, though. People from all over this empire, they're vacationing into Jerusalem, thinking they're going to be there for, I don't know, a month, month and a half, and all of a sudden they receive new life through this thing called Jesus. They go all in, and by this point, their vacation money's running out. The Airbnb is sending them an email saying, yeah, we can't extend you another week. Sorry, unless you're going to have to double up now. And so what do the apostles do? You see, it's this passage that I think makes people nervous. If we view it from a prescriptive mind, we think, okay, well, I'm a farmer. I got a lot of land. Does that mean I got to sell all of my land and give it to the church? What are you guys going to do with all of the land? I don't know, right? And that's not what it's saying. See, what this passage isn't saying is that in order to be a Christian or a true disciple, that you need to sell everything you have and live in a commune. This passage isn't saying that to be a Christian means everyone has to be on equal footing all the time. But what this passage is saying is there was unity in the spirit that led them to care for one another in the midst of a storm, in the midst of a trial. The unity of the spirit led them to see God first, people second, our stuff third. And it says they had everything in common. And I don't think that's just a reference to their stuff. They have the same depravity of sin. They have the same Savior, the same indwelling of the Spirit, the same church, the same mission. But in my opinion, there is a prescriptive part of this text, but it's not they had everything, they sold everything, they gave it all to the church, because some of you, you're sweating really bad right now. The prescriptive part of this text is verse 33. Let's read it again. It says this. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to be Marthuses of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace 
was so powerfully at work in them all. If you want to highlight something, if you want to circle something, if you want to underline something, take this second half of this verse, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. Thus it led them to do things to take care of one another. God's grace is kind of like a riddle. What do you get more of the more you give it away? The grace of God. What's descriptive is they were saying we need to sell what we have in order to take care of one another. What's prescriptive is the grace of God wants to move powerfully in your life, but you have to be willing to let it. And from time to time, it may ask you to do something that seems a little out of bounds. From time to time, the grace of God, if it's working powerfully in your life, may require to you to, to, to give up something that you want to hold on to. And it leads me to this point, the main point for this morning, is that we hoard nothing as disciples. That as disciples of Jesus, we hoard nothing as disciples. We don't hoard our stuff. We don't hoard the grace of God. We don't hoard our finances. We don't hoard our spiritual gifts. As disciples, we are called to live open-handed with everything that God has granted to us. And the greatest threat that Samuel even kind of touched on a little bit last week is when we get into that mindset of, well, I'll just do that later. I'll just take care of it later. I'll be generous later on in life. I'll get into the word tomorrow when I'm a little bit more rested. I'll serve next month when our schedule kind of lightens a little bit. I'll repent next time when I feel a little bit more sorrow about it. I'll invite someone to church the next time it seems a little bit more easy of a conversation to have. But in chapter 3, let me make this connection for us because I think it's so good. Chapter 3, Peter and John, they go up to this man who has nothing. And he wants something from them. And they say to him, we have no silver or gold. But what we do have, we give to you. The power of the Spirit, the grace of God to move in your life. Chapter 4 comes around. We do have silver and gold. The grace of God is moving through us. We give to one another. We are called to hoard nothing as disciples. So let me end with this question this morning is how do you know if God's great grace is moving powerfully through you or not? Let me give you a passage from 1 John chapter 2. That same John writes this talking about how do you know if you are walking faithfully and obedient to Jesus? He puts it this way in 1 John Chapter 2, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6, he says, We know that we have come to know him. He's talking about Jesus if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what, the, uh, what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, the love of God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. That whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Jesus hoarded, is that a word? Hoarded nothing. Not his status to be considered equal to God. 
did not hoard his life. He did not hoard his spirit. All through an act of grace, he's given it to us. Each and every person at some point needs to answer the question, what must I do to be saved? Do I believe in the power of the resurrection or not? It should then lead us, if you answer, yes, I believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved, the only way to have eternal life, to the question that says, well, what must I do because I'm saved? But the question we should never find ourselves asking is, what can I do and still be saved? What can I still get away with? What can I still hoard in my life? What can I still hold on to and still be saved? When God's grace moves powerfully through our lives, the mission of God moves. And I want to see the mission of God move powerfully in my life. Do you? Do you want to see the Spirit do amazing things through your life? I want to see the mission of God move powerfully through the life of this church, the life of our groups, the life of our kids' ministry, the life of our student ministry in ways in which we say, we don't know what happened other than the grace of God moved so powerfully. Look at what's going on. We can't claim any of it. We didn't do any of it. All we can say is that God showed up. So what about you? As we prepare for communion this morning, I want you to do two things. Number one, if you have your communion elements, you can get those out. But number two, I want you to get ready to write something down. As we get ready to partake in communion, we remember that Jesus hoarded nothing. He gave of his life willingly so that we could have it. Through the power of his grace, the message of his resurrection. Jesus let his body be broken. He let his blood be shed. And we remember that through the cracker that represents the body of Christ broken for you, through the juice that represents the blood of Christ shed for you. But I want to ask you this question. What might it look like for you for the grace of God to move in your life? Maybe today, maybe, maybe perhaps this week, this month, this year, could very much so be you've been hoarding your finances. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. We talk about oftentimes our money is the one thing that sits on the throne of our heart slightly above Jesus. If that's you, there's a given response box, you can do so on that. That might very much be you. Others, it might very much be to use your gifts and talents to serve the kingdom of God. Some of us, I'd very much need to be forgiving to that person for the first time. You've been holding on to that bitterness. You've been holding on to that angst, using it as a source of strength, a source of power that's only gonna corrupt and rust you from the inside out. It can very much be to share the grace of God tangibly. Share your story with a neighbor, a coworker. It could very much be when you sit on those sidelines this summer, that there is a parent sitting next to you or an aunt and uncle who you know is struggling and you get to say, hey, can I just tell you about something that's changed my life? You might be willing to receive it, you might not, but can I just share this with you? Because I've seen something amazing, something powerfully work in me and I couldn't help myself but just know that I've done whatever I can to share with you. I don't know what it is for you, but my guess is there's something that the grace of God wants to do powerfully within you. And so as we move into a time of communion, I wanna invite you to do two things. Number one, partake communion. Remember what was not hoarded so that you can have new life. And number two, write something down. 
There's a connect card in the seat. You can write it and keep it for yourself. You can hoard that for yourself for this time, but you know what I'm saying. You can get out your phone and text it to you, email it to you, pull up the apps, uh, the, the, the note app. Write down just one thing that in this moment that you believe the spirit of God is saying, I wanna work powerfully through this. Give this to me and watch what I will do. Let me move powerfully within your life so the mission of God may continue to move through us all. The timer's gonna come on the screen for a few minutes and we encourage you to reflect on Jesus and how his grace wants to move through you today.